0: have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. If you are new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, it's typically our practice to preach through books of the Bible, and we have been working our way through this wonderful portion of God's Word, the Gospel of John. And I want to read for you this morning John, chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's holy and inspired and unerring word. Let's give it our full attention. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. This is God's Word. Let's pray. And now, O Lord, we ask Your blessing upon Your Word that we might hear it and receive it in faith and that You might use it towards our becoming more like Christ, more trusting in You, more hopeful in You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. On Friday... Just a couple of days ago, I read the following from an article published in a journal from the UK called The Guardian. It's a fascinating article, and I selected just this small portion to bring to you today. It reads like this. Shortly after waking, Brian Johnson drinks a murky concoction involving involving olive oil, cocoa flavanols and something derived from algae. Breakfast will be a blend, a slurry, of lentils, broccoli, and mushrooms, with lunch and dinner not much different. If your best friend suddenly started behaving like this, you'd worry he was developing an eating disorder. But men like Johnson, whose monastically disciplined routine went viral on Twitter this week, consider themselves biohackers, scientific pioneers, pushing the boundaries of human life expectancy in what amounts to an attempt to hack death itself. He claims his experiment, from which he hopes to devise rules anyone can follow, allows him to resist aging so successfully that, quote, for every 365 days I age, 277 days. Whatever that means. Yet contemplating his dessert of olive oil with pellets of dark chocolate floating glumly in it, you have to ask, is it worth it? Indeed. You know, there's a reason why people throughout the ages, from primitive cultures to the most sophisticated of societies, have believed in, reached for, ached for life that is eternal, life that never ends. There's a reason for that, because God has put it in our hearts to ache for it. There's a reason why humanity, after all of these years and after all of the supposed intellectual achievements of the Enlightenment, still longs for, hopes for life that is eternal. The reason is because God has caused us to hope for it. We have, every human being on the planet has a God-haunted conscience, believer and unbeliever alike. God has put his law, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2. He's put his law into our hearts in such a way that we long for him even when we don't know it, that we hope for what he would have us hope for even when we get it wrong. God has put eternity in the hearts of men, and we long for a world we do not have yet, precisely because there is a world that we do not have yet. Chapter 11 of John's Gospel has much to teach us about life and death, about suffering and sovereignty, about faith and dismay, and about resurrection and life. Now everyone in this entire chapter is mourning. Lazarus is dead and buried That's the importance of the detail, by the way, in verse 17, that he's been in the tomb for four days. Now, there had arisen within Judaism a superstition that went something like this. It was believed that after death, a person's soul, now again, this was a superstition, this did not come from Scripture, but there had arisen this belief within Judaism that after death, someone's soul lingered by the body for three days, and after three days, the soul would depart, and there would be... Nothing but a dead body left. So it's interesting. I think Jesus being very sensitive to that superstition and wanting to remove all doubt that Lazarus was as dead as dead could be makes sure he's in that tomb for four full days. Mary and Martha are joined in their sadness. They're joined in their grief by other Jews that John mentions here. These are people from Jerusalem, who had traveled to Bethany to be with them in their time of sorrow and their grief. Uh, Martha, Mary, and now the deceased Lazarus, no doubt, were a rather prominent family. They had friends and associates in Jerusalem who have now come there to grieve with them. We know that they were a prominent family, in part also because in the next chapter, Mary, in possession of a very expensive uh, container of perfume, breaks it open and pours it all out over Jesus' feet. People who watch it are astonished that she would take something worth so much money and pour it out on his feet. And here, all of them, without exception, are in the depths of sadness. Even Jesus, as we will see in verse 35, Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend. And adding to the grief is the detail that John gives us in verse 18 about the close proximity between Bethany and And Jerusalem, just over the Mount of Olives, less than two miles away. And the reason why that's so important is because now, once again, he is within the easy grasp of those who have determined to kill him. So suffering and the inevitability of greater suffering soon to come hang like this dark cloud over the entire scene as Jesus strides into Bethany. But when Jesus walks in, the atmosphere changes. Because when Jesus walks on the scene, he does not walk onto the scene as an ordinary man or even a great man. When Jesus comes in, it is the king who enters. When Jesus walks on the scene, it's the God of creation who appears. He's not some well-meaning but misguided guru walking around spreading pixie dust everywhere or telling everybody to just smile and make things better. He is the king of this world. It is his world. And in just a moment, he's going to say something and then do something which demonstrates that he has now ushered into this kingdom, the greater everlasting kingdom, in which suffering, all suffering will be redeemed and death will be undone. And he has the authority to do it. Again, this is not wishful thinking. These are not sentimentalities on the part of Jesus. He is the king. He is the sovereign one. And he has the authority and the power to bring it about. And what Jesus is revealing is that the death of Lazarus, the cause of all this sorrow, is not some random, purposeless tragedy. It is sad. It is sad to the point that Jesus himself will weep. But remember what Jesus has already said to his disciples when they first got word of, Je- of, of Lazarus's. Severe illness, his life-threatening illness. Jesus said this, this illness does not lead to death, even though he knew Lazarus was going to die, but Jesus was going to forever change our relationship with death. This illness does not lead to death, Jesus said. It is for the glory of God. Now when Jesus said, this thing, namely the death of Lazarus, this sickness from which he will not recover but will die, this thing is for for something, Jesus is speaking the language of design. Is he not? Of purpose. It is for something. It is for the glory of God. If you want a very simple answer to the question, why? Well, why what? I mean, why anything? And I'm not being glib. Please hear me. I am not being glib. I'm being biblical here. If you want a simple but very true and ultimately satisfying answer to the question, why? There may be secondary answers, and there often are. But the great overarching ultimate answer to the question, why, is this. For the glory of God. And for people who love Jesus, and for people whose hope is bound up in Him, the answer for the glory of God, is an increasingly satisfying and precious answer to the question, why? The death of Lazarus is not some meaningless tragedy. This is God's world. Even if we're perplexed, God is not. And we can be sure that all of our sorrows All of our sufferings are under the sway of God's good, satisfying, wise providence. And so let's state this very plainly. It's truth we have stated so many times here because the Bible states it, explains it, models it, defends it so many times. And the truth is this. God is sovereign, that is, He rules over, He is in control over all things that come to pass. He truly rules His creation in such a way that not a single thing comes to pass outside of His sovereign will. The Bible makes that very clear. The Bible doesn't hedge on that. The Bible doesn't counterbalance that with something that contradicts it. It is the biblical truth over and over and over again. For instance, listen to what God declares of himself through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 46. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end of From the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Notice that God says that He declares the end from the beginning. He is not just simply aware of the end from the beginning, or does He possess just simple knowledge of the end from the beginning, but He declares it. He makes it so, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's the God who is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works how many things? all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8:28 And we know that for those who love God, how many things? All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Well, we could go on and on and on throughout the Bible with that truth being repeated to us over and over again, that God is sovereign over all things that come to pass. It is unambiguous in Scripture. It is uncontested in Scripture that that is the truth. And that this sovereignty is consistent with God being free of sin and granting to his human creatures full moral accountability for the choices that they make. There's no contradiction there. There may be mystery and tension in our own minds as we try to understand it all, but there is no contradiction there. To state it in the words of our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1. God... From all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. We're being told there what Scripture tells us over and over again all things come to pass through the sovereign will of God, yet without God ever being the author of sin and with his human creatures still being fully possessed of moral agency for the choices they make and over the fact that God oftentimes uses secondary causes, secondary means to bring about his sovereign will. Now again, these truths are not contradictory, but they do often cause tension in our own limited minds. Think about it. God opposes sin, but he remains in control over the wicked. God hates evil, but he allows it to act in this fallen world. God is the author of life, and yet he ordains death. God hates injustice, and yet he allows for the rule of tyrants. God loves us. And he ordains our catastrophes. A couple of weeks ago, I read to you a little portion of a book called Therefore I Have Hope. It's written by a youth and children's pastor from a Reformed church in Birmingham, Alabama, named Cameron Cole. The cause of the book was the sudden and tragic and unexpected death of his three-year-old son named Cam. I want to read for you one more small passage from it. Here he's dealing with the idea, the false idea, the thing that people told him who were trying in a misguided way to comfort him, that God had nothing to do with your loss. God had nothing to do with your tragedy. As though by telling us that God is not competent, we can be comforted that he still has good intentions. Listen to what. What the author writes, quote, "...the idea that God had nothing to do with my son's death terrifies me. If I were to believe that he was not involved in Cam's death, it would shatter my entire worldview. For all of these years, I would have falsely believed in a universe with higher purpose. I would have falsely believed that God is holding all things together." and moving all moments toward an appointed end where justice and redemption ultimately prevail. I would have falsely believed that all of life has meaning. But those beliefs would fall apart if God didn't have anything to do with Cam's death. This false suggestion proposes that some moments have meaning And some moments do not have meaning. If God had nothing to do with my son's death, then certain pockets of life, the really awful ones in particular, are given over to chaos because the God of the universe is removed from them. In the case of my worst and in the case of yours, if God is not involved, then it has no purpose. Well, that is simply what the Scriptures affirm to us in many different ways and in many different places. That God is sovereign in our suffering just as much as He is sovereign in our joys. Now look at Martha and Mary in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him, but Mary remained seated in the house. This is a lot like the busy Martha and the laid-back Mary of Luke chapter 10, isn't it? They're very much who they are. But I want to I want to focus just for a moment. I want your mind to linger on what we see Martha doing here. Mary gets all the praise in Luke 10. She's the one who sat at the feet of Jesus while Martha was busy doing the things that we hope a hostess would do. Um Here, Martha is the exemplary one, I believe. Because what did she do? She went out to Jesus. Martha goes to the right place in her calamity. She makes her way immediately to Jesus upon his arrival. And brothers and sisters, I want to plead with you that we have here in this moment a model to follow. When we suffer... Loss or or pain, when calamity comes, where do we turn first? Where do we go first? For some, it may be intoxicants. Others, pornography. Others, perhaps, indulge in anger or cynicism. Or you become so mad at God that you threaten that you'll never believe in Him again. In the midst of all of that, Martha serves as an example to us that when the sorrows roll in like a tidal wave, go to Jesus then. Go to Jesus now. Don't wait. Let him be the first one you turn to. Now look again at verse 21. Do you see what Martha says to Jesus? If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Now, of course, that's a debatable question. And it's really a moot point because the whole purpose was that Lazarus should die in that moment. It's just that she doesn't see it. And it's understandable. Now, some suggest that Martha here is rebuking Jesus, kind of saying, like, where were you? If you'd been here doggone it, this wouldn't have happened. I don't think that's what's going on. Keep in mind that Martha expresses still a very high level of faith in Jesus, doesn't she? You see verse 22, but even now, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Whatever Martha was struggling with, what has not been lost on her is her faith in Jesus. In the words of one commentator, Martha is expressing her confidence in the power of Jesus' intercession for all eventualities. Her brother's death has not destroyed her faith in Jesus. But there is an interesting tension in Martha's faith. She knew that Jesus had healed many people. She had probably seen him heal people. In fact, his healing miracles were so well acknowledged and so well attested by so many witnesses that even the religious authorities who hated him and wanted to kill him knew they had to acknowledge that he was a healer, that he was a miracle worker. They'd seen it. It had happened too much for them to deny anymore with any credibility. Well, Martha knows this about Jesus. And so she is perplexed as to why he wouldn't be there to heal one of his best friends. And what we see in Martha is what we see so often in our own hearts. The coexisting realities of faith and dismay. Faith and distress, faith and confusion. And now she has no expectation that Jesus can do anything to remedy the current catastrophe that has hit her family. It's just too late as far as Martha is concerned. And this is not rebuke, this is dismay. Dismay can be most easily understood as distress. It's distress brought about by something painful or confusing. It's the result of some sort of tension where something doesn't add up. Something doesn't make sense. Distress isn't the same thing as doubt, though it can turn into doubt. Doubt is not a virtue. In Scripture, we are called upon repeatedly to believe and not to doubt. But dismay is something very different from doubt. Dismay is the response of a genuine faith, That is under fire. Dismay is the psalmist asking why it is that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. That's dismay. And the reason why he's crying out to the Lord for the answer is precisely because he believes in God. If he didn't believe in God, if his his faith were being shattered, he wouldn't bother to cry out to God. Dismay. Turns to God. Dismay cries out to God for answers precisely because what we believe is true about God, what we know is true about God, has seemed, at least in our perspective, to come into con- to, to collision and into conflict with what has happened. And so we say, Lord, why is this? Lord, I don't understand this. Lord, I know you're good, so how could this have happened? Doubt doesn't bother. With that tension. It just disbelieves. So dismay can and often does exist in union with robust faith. Commenting on this very passage, J.C. Ryle wrote, What a strange mixture of grace and weakness is to be found in the hearts of true believers. So Jesus tells Martha. To comfort her, he tells her, your brother is going to be raised up. Now, Martha's not tracking with him. She still cannot conceive of a category where Jesus would raise up a dead man in her presence. She she doesn't have a category for that. So Martha says to Jesus, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, Good theology there. An end-time resurrection was already an established doctrine among the Jews. This was not a New Testament invention. An end-time resurrection where God would raise up his people to life was already an established belief among observant, faithful Jews. David, for instance, many years before, fully anticipated a post-resurrection reunion with his son who had died in infancy. Now there was a body of Jewish religious leaders, the Sadducees, the theological liberals of their day, who denied a lot of the supernatural aspects of Judaism. And among the things they denied was this end-time resurrection. But the Pharisees affirmed it. And Jesus affirms it as well. And the New Testament will go on to not only affirm that, but to unpack it to a greater degree and help us to understand it in its fullness. And while Martha's belief in this future end-time resurrection is justified, she can't fathom that Jesus has the power to raise up a dead man right then and there. So what does Jesus do? He teaches her. He teaches her. Now Martha has a high view of Jesus, but it's still at this point an inadequate view. In in other words, she believes that he is a great man. She believes that he has some sort of a unique relationship with God, that he's been sent by God. Uh, How else would he have the power to perform the the miracles that he's performed? What she doesn't yet understand, it seems, is a, a full grasp of his person and his office and his deity. And so Jesus now goes about setting her faith on a far more sure foundation. Do you see there verses 25 and 26? Again, Jesus teaches her. She's referring to a proper theological category. She makes reference to a proper doctrine, an end time, an end of the age resurrection where God will raise up all of His people to life. That's true. She's thinking about that doctrine. She's banking on that doctrine. But Jesus needs to let her know that He is more than she currently understands. And so He says, listen, Yes, that's true. In fact, Jesus and the apostles are going to teach us far more about that end time resurrection to come. What Jesus wants her to know is that resurrection and life has far more to do with him right now than it does with a distant future. And so he says what? I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, that's fine. I want you to look there, but you need to look here first. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asks. Jesus does not merely enjoy special status with God. Notice that Jesus does not merely declare that He's able to grant resurrection and life, though that is true. But the power over death and the power to grant life belongs to Jesus to such a degree that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jesus' fifth of his seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Remember when Jesus says that, When he says, I am, he is taking the very language that God gave to Moses to understand how to address him, to understand who he is. He takes that covenant name of God and he applies it to himself. No, Jesus is not just a special representative of God. Jesus is not just a prophet sent by God. Jesus is the holy, everlasting I am in human flesh. And he needs her to know that. She needs to know that. J.C. Ryle writes this. He tells her that He is not merely a human teacher of the resurrection, but the divine author of all resurrection, whether spiritual or physical, and He is the root and fountain of all life. Jesus is the high and holy I Am who took upon Himself a human nature in order to die in our place and be raised just as He will raise us up one day. Jesus is the first cause of life and the one who has purchased and guarantees our own resurrection. And watch this. By joining together resurrection and life, Jesus is making it clear that the life he gives has the quality of being eternal. He raises us up. He snatches us from death. He, He fundamentally changes our relationship with death making death ultimately powerless to keep us. He is the resurrection. He raises us up that way so that the life that He grants us is one of an eternal quality. As Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And you see then that very next clause once again, whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. Once again, we have Jesus here repeated that blessed calculus of the gospel that those who believe upon him will be saved unto eternal life. The great New Testament scholar Leon Morris writes this, The moment a man puts his trust in Jesus, he begins to experience that life of the age to come which cannot be touched by death. Here, Jesus says plainly that there is no resurrection life, meaning there is no eternal life in the blessed presence of God. It is not there apart from faith in Him. But to those who believe in Him, that life which is eternal has already been granted, granted to the extent that death cannot have the final word. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, knowing that we will die in this fallen world, speaks as though death cannot touch us. Knowing that we will die, he nevertheless says, believe in me and you won't perish. How can he do that? Well, because he has so changed, fundamentally changed, our relationship with death, though even it take our mortal life in this fallen world, only does so in such a way that it becomes for the one whose hope is anchored in Christ like a brief nap until their eyes are opened to see their king. You see that final little pause in verse 26? It's a question that Jesus puts to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus has just explained to her the most fundamental thing that he came to proclaim, which is this. His most basic, most precious promise, he's just proclaimed to her. Believe in me, and you will have life eternal from me. That is still the everlasting promise of Jesus. Believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. The most fundamental promise within the gospel, there it is. And so it must be followed by the most pressing question. Do you believe this? And she responds, with a confession of faith that echoes the words that we heard earlier from the Apostle Peter. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She affirms that he is Lord. She affirms that he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, sent by God. Not only that, but he is the Son of God. He stands in unique relationship to God. And he is the one coming into the world that is sent into the world to become like us. There is a freight train of theology here in Martha's words. Martha doesn't know yet that her brother will soon be alive again. As far as I know, she's still not expecting it. But she has something better. Because she knows more than ever who the man standing before her truly is. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? To know who Jesus is in the midst of your calamity makes all the difference. Do you remember Job? In his incredible loss? And do you remember that after he was hit by catastrophe after catastrophe, he said these remarkable things like, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And as time goes on and he bears the sorrow and the sickness and the physical torment, as he's tormented by the legalistic accusations of his friends, his heart starts to give way and he cries out to the point where he begins to accuse God of not running his universe very well. God answers back. Do you, remember, do you remember what God gives Job that makes all the difference for Job? Do you remember what it is? It's not a systematic answer giving him an answer to every single question he might have concerning the calamities he experienced. What God gives Job in that moment which satisfies Job to the point that he puts his hand over his mouth. What God gives him is himself. His, his His presence, His voice. All of which we have in the person of Jesus Christ. All of which we have in the presence of Christ in our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All of which we have in this true and living Word that He has placed in our laps. You know, some people in this lifetime receive and are able to see some extraordinary fruit from certain calamities they suffer. They'll they'll suffer a catastrophe, and yet they'll see how the Lord has used it in certain ways. They'll see it with their own eyes, and they're able to rejoice in that. But that doesn't happen every time, does it? Some calamities rest there. Some catastrophes stay there. And the dismay gnaws at our hearts and we wonder because we know that God is good. We know that God is so good He didn't spare His own Son but He gave Him up for us. And that seems inconsistent with the fact that he allowed this and through his sovereign authority brought this about. That seems to contradict. That seems to be intention. That seems to be in conflict. And what we need in that moment is not a scientific explanation as to the exact reasons, a philosophically satisfying explanation, because a philosophically satisfying explanation won't actually be satisfying when it's your child who's been lost. What you need in that moment is him, his presence, his glory, his goodness. And that's what he's given us. That's who he is to us in Christ. And so Jesus' question has to be pressed upon each and every one of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe what Jesus has said? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that He will not only redeem your sorrows, that He will not only wipe away every tear that you have shed one day, do you also believe that He will raise you up incorruptible to live in His blessed presence? Do you believe that? People all over this world, in every conceivable culture, ache for something like that because they've been made to ache for it. Jesus answers. Do you believe in me? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And if you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, I wonder today, if the piercing truth of God's word has gotten through, are you ready to say, yes, I believe this. I believe that Jesus is Lord, the Christ, the Son of God. I believe this. The precious promise of Scripture is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's that scandalously simple. God will never invite you to master the five things or walk the seven stairs or, 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 or find perfection in these spiritual techniques in order to be saved. That stuff doesn't work. That stuff is a dead end. That stuff is man-made legalism. But He cuts through the hopelessness and helplessness of our own sinful inability. And he scandalously calls us by his grace and says, if you're going to be saved at all, then you're going to have to be saved by my grace and not your works and not your efforts. So believe. Believe. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask your help so that your word would remain in us. And that it would bear fruit. Grant faith, Lord, to the unbeliever today. Would you do that, Lord? Grant renewed confidence and hope in the heart of those who are grieving. And for those that are not grieving, Lord, prepare them for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.